you were wondering, Legacy, we have some Tennessee Tech students over here, um, seniors from Tennessee Tech. Hey, thanks for coming. It's good to have you here. Um, I got a chance to hang out with them last night, and man, they were really cool. So what I want you to do in the next few minutes, I would love for you to meet some of them, but definitely get around and meet somebody that you don't recognize. And by the way, okay, so go Vols. Big game last night. I want you to tell somebody what you would have done differently if you were the head coach, because I know you got an opinion. Are you ready? <laughs> All right, go meet somebody. <laughs> Great to see you this morning. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. Yeah, I see a lot of faces I have not met yet. Would love to meet you after the service if you get a chance to stick around. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy Church. I'm actually the lead teaching pastor. Very honored to get to speak with you today. Very honored to look at the word for us today. Um, so if you have a Bible, we're going to jump right in. If you have a Bible or an app that you use, go ahead and turn to Luke 8. Luke 8 is going to be a very helpful passage for us today. I've been wrestling with it for quite a while, but it has helped me see Jesus much more clearly, as I hope it does for you. I hope it leads you well today. Luke 8. I was thinking this morning, whenever I was a kid, I think in the mid-80s, 
I couldn't, I, I don't know exactly how old I was, somewhere between 7 and 11, some, some of those years. We lived in Saginaw, Texas, which is a suburb area of Fort Worth, greater Fort Worth. And my parents didn't go to church. We weren't Christians. I didn't grow up that way. But my neighbors, I think they were Catholic. I'm not quite sure what they were. I was too young to even care or know the difference between A and B. And they had asked my parents, is it okay if we take your kids to church with us? And my parents were fine with that. So <laughs> they let my neighbors take me and my brother to church with them. And I was fine with that because they gave away candy bars to guests, right? So I'd get this candy bar, and for a seven or eight-year-old, that's a pretty big deal. And then we were for sure going to get back in time for kickoff. I was a big Dallas Cowboys fan, and so it was a big deal for our family. So candy bar, kickoff, I'm good. Talk about whatever you want. So I remember being in a Sunday school with my little brother and being with a bunch of people I don't know and hearing the story of the garden for the first time. Adam and Eve. It was the first time I was ever exposed to that. I really distinctly remember it. I remember because I laughed out awkwardly. I didn't know it wasn't funny, but I laughed out whenever they said the word naked, right? Because when you're that age, that's just a funny word anyway, naked. You just giggle when you hear it. You giggle if you get to say it, naked. And they walked around naked all the time. It, but, but what was interesting is I thought, why would they be naked? I mean, that's something that like hippies do or toddlers do with a cape on and no clothes on. But like two normal people, just grown adults walking around without any clothes on, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's bizarre. I especially wondered why the Bible would say, and their eyes were open, right? Because I, I thought their eyes would have already had to have been opened. I mean, they have to see. They'd be bumping into trees and bumping into animals. I mean, of course their eyes were open. But the Bible, I know now, was not talking about them being able to see. It was talking about now they're at a place where they're able to be seen. Now, that's something totally different. We see in Genesis 3. Don't turn there. Just go ahead and stay where you're at. It said, then, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They knew. They could be seen. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths or underwear so that they would be covered. So they did not want to be seen by others. But then they also did not want to be seen by God because we see a little bit later on, Adam telling God, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself, not with a loincloth as much as with like a bush or a tree. He wanted to be away because our parents in Adam and Eve were repellent against being seen. They did not want to be seen. Why? Because they could feel shame for the first time. That's what it means to have your eyes open. They could feel the weight of shame for the first time. And it was not comfortable. They wanted to hide from each other. They wanted to hide from God, right? And so like our parents... Many of our lives on a day-to-day -day basis is really an exercise in hiding ourselves from God and hiding ourselves from others because fig leaves are still in style, right? Might be a little bit differently, but we're pretty inventive and we're pretty protective as we're going to see in a little bit. So we've been going through a series the last two weeks, this week and last week. Last week we started this series called Navigating Pain and Suffering because I think it's important for us as a church that's going to be on mission and is on mission to the city in general, but a certain part of the city that actually feels a very visible kind of pain and suffering, we needed to increase our fluency in that as well. And what does it mean? And last week we looked at just the problem of suffering, the problem that it is, and how it interrupts our lives, and how we view it in possibly a very not Christian way. And today what I'd like to do is not talk so much about how pain interrupts us, but talk about how when some pain and suffering comes, it brings shame with it. That's a special kind of affliction, isn't it? Not just 
suffering and affliction and pain, but the kind that is mingled with shame because we do not like to be naked. So let's look at Luke chapter 8. I'm going to jump down into verse 42, and I'm kind of jumping into the middle of a little mini story arc because we've seen Jesus do some pretty cool things in the last couple days, and right now we're jumping into the middle of a story that's in the middle of a story because Jairus came and said, hey, my daughter, is, it, 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 she needs your help. She's dying. She's dead. But on the way to go see this daughter who has perished, we catch this in verse, we'll just say the last part of verse 42. As Jesus went, the Bible says, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Okay, so here's the main idea of that text. After a lot of time and a lot of expense, this woman, she actually pressed in and found Jesus as he walks by. And this is coming from a life of isolation and a life of shame, many years of it. But she sees Jesus and desperation causes her to draw near and God frees her from the bleeding and sends her off in peace as a daughter. It's a very beautiful story, really. It's a very cool story. And I think the traditional way to preach this text, traditionally, is to focus on the fact that the blood stopped. And I don't know that that's bad to do that, but I think there is more to this story because I think there's a context. There's a context in this story. In, th in fact, there's 4,380 days of a context. That's what 12 years is. 4,380 days. The Bible makes special mention of the fact that this was a 12-year affliction. It's a long-term infliction. In fact, you'll find the same story in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? You'll find it in all three. And they all have a little bit of a special nuance or angle towards it, but they all say 12 years. It's a long time. Because we really don't know much about this woman. We, do, we know that she's not wealthy now, but we don't know that at one time she wasn't. Maybe she was wealthy. Did she love God? I mean, maybe. Maybe not. She's being awfully superstitious, or at least appearing to be so here, right? What happened to her afterward? I don't know. I mean, what was her name? It doesn't even say her name. There's so much that we don't know, but what we do know is we get to see this brief moment where she ends up at Jesus' feet as he snaps the back of a problem that the medical industry was unable to fix. That we do see, and that is very cool. But I will say that the context goes even deeper because this bleeding is more than just bleeding, there's more to this blood problem than just pain and inconvenience, although it is all of those things. It's not less than those things. It is more than those things. This also meant that she could not be included in community. If you were to go back on your own time, go back and look at the book of Leviticus, and you will actually see that when someone has a bleeding problem, maybe a woman once a month when she's bleeding or when someone has a scab or a wound that's not healing, they have to go away from community until the bleeding is stopped and then they can come back in. But if you're bleeding, you can't be with everybody else. You're not included anymore. So the problem for her is she's always bleeding. I mean, she didn't have any community. 
any besties. She didn't have anyone she could talk to. She didn't have any close network of friends for 12 years. That we know by law. So I think her cultural value, I think it's safe to say that it plummeted and it found itself right around the notch of a leper. Always outside looking in, never really able to come close. So we see that she was valueless, she was unclean, seen as unclean, therefore she was alone. So this bleeding, it is a form of suffering, but you could tell it's mixed with a lot of shame. Shame followed this kind of suffering. Always shunned, always thought of as unclean, always broke, apparently. Broken hopes, hoping something for the millionth time and having it not come to pass year after year after year after year. Here she is, 4,380 days into this heavy affliction when along comes Jesus. Man, he comes walking by. Jesus is being hurried from point A to point B by his disciples. You kind of catch the vibe that there's a lot going on. The people are pressing in on him. They're grabbing him. You kind of catch the vibe that there's a lot going on in this moment. I always uh, imagine like a celebrity trying to make his or her way through a crowd and having, you could always see in those pictures of those videos, a couple handlers here or there just deflecting enough people off to get this person through the crowd. I don't know that that's what happened here. It just feels like that's what's happening here. Regardless, I would have loved to have been there just to see this woman pressing through all of that just to get a piece of his garment. I mean, she had to have gotten her hope up for what could have been the billionth time. You don't think she's tried everything for 12 years? But then she said, I think this will work. I have faith that he, all I have to do is get close. All I have to do is just touch, just touch his robe. I would have loved to have just seen the look on her face. Have you ever seen somebody? You can't see the, the EKG. You can't see what their heart rate is doing, but you can see it. You can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their, their, their posture. I would have loved to have seen her heart rate go through the roof and the sweaty hands and the, oh my gosh. I mean, most scholars say that she probably wasn't even from this area because if she was from this area, people would have known you're not even supposed to be this close to us. This is a crowd with Jesus walking through. You can't just get in the middle of all of that. So most people believe that she came from another place, right? Regardless, this is a pretty big deal. The point is, is she didn't just walk up and grab his robe. It didn't go down like that. This is a huge move, the kind of move that can only be powered by a very deep desperation. And that's what we're seeing in her. So she grabs the robe. Jesus says, who touched me? He felt power go out from him. That's what he says. I felt power go out from me. This is interesting. This is an interesting healing because typically Jesus would be the initiator. He'd see a blind person, walk up, not blind anymore. See someone dead, walk up, not dead anymore. He would be the initiator. But in this case, she comes up like a little assassin, grabs his robe, and then God heals her through Jesus. God heals her by the Holy Spirit, through Jesus. And Jesus says, what? Something just happened. I felt power go through me. Now, there's some nerd arguments that happen if you look at the forums or pick up the wrong book. One of the nerd arguments is, did Jesus have his power drained, right? Okay, maybe, right? I mean, we do know from time to time that he was hungry, right? That he was thirsty, Maybe tired, I mean, people, I'm not saying Jesus was an introvert, but we do find him in places separate from everybody else. There are, he was fully man, just like he is fully God, right? But I will say, he's not less God in this. It's not like power drained from him and he's just all of a sudden like 80% Jesus. So I don't know why that argument matters. I shouldn't have brought it up. I think another nerd argument is Jesus looking around, did he know who touched him and did he or did he not? So when he says, 
Who is it to touch me? Does he really know? Is he trying to get this woman to own it, to come out and say, got it, it's me, I'm sorry, I did it, this is why? Or does he really want to know? Again, who really cares? I mean, the whole point is, is that she finds herself at his feet in a very real moment where, as it says in Mark's, Mark's rendition of this, she told her whole story. Her whole story. I bet that was a story. I bet it wasn't a great one. Her whole story? 12 years, 4,380 days, I'm sure has a story to tell. And not just in front of Jesus. That might be semi-easy, even though he was a man. But in front of everybody? Because that's how this is going down. That's how I read it. So Jesus does two very beautiful things as she lays herself vulnerable, calls her daughter, and then says, go in peace. Those are important. They don't seem important. It's just a cursory reading. Daughter is a sign of inclusion. You've never been included for the last over a decade. You've not been included. Now you are. You're daughter. By the way, this is the only time in any of the Gospels that Jesus calls anyone daughter. This is it. You're in a family now. You're included. And it's an affectionate term at that. Number two, he says, go in peace. Now, this is something she hasn't had in a really, really long time. Has not had a lot of peace. So there is a backstory to this cool story, because what else would happen in 4,380 days? That's why some of you have a backstory too. You came in here with suffering and affliction, a lot of it possibly mingled with some sort of a shame. Maybe something was done to you. Maybe you have done something. Maybe you have done something because something was done to you. But there's a backstory, isn't there? Maybe you haven't told it. I wonder if we could get in a time machine how it would be if we were to go back maybe at year nine for her of this affliction, year 10, maybe year 11 and a half. If we were to fire up the flux capacitor and go back to that time and march out and find her and say, listen, can I ask you a couple questions? How do you see God right now? Is he a caring God? Does he listen to you? And let me change the subject. How about your friendships right now? Do you have some close friends? What does community look like for you? I wonder if we would have asked her to tell her story, would we have gotten a story? Would she tell us what was really going on in her life for the last 11 years? I don't think she would. I think she'd be locked down pretty tight like a vault. I think this because I bump into this person all the time today. And you do too, right? Something maybe horrible was done to you. Statistically, a lot of you have been sexually abused, statistically, right? I feel comfortable saying that. That's happened to a lot of people in this room. A lot of infertility. Something done to you. Something that you've not been able to shake. So you walk around with this shame and you can't get it off of you. Not because of anything that you have done. Evil is evil. And sometimes it just pounds us. And we're total victims. But there's still shame. And then sometimes there's shame because of stuff that we have done typically see this in addictions like pornography where you just go day after day after day and you wear this heavy shame and you just don't feel like you could really get close to God because you've got this shame sticking to you. Whatever it is, whether you've done something or something done to you, I believe that there are people in this room and people in churches all over the city that know a little bit about this kind of affliction, the kind mingled with shame, right? That's what I think. Because for all the money and time and self-cleaning and church after church and different professionals and different counselors, it seems like shame and suffering still stick to the ribs and you can't get rid of it. You see, there seems to be an anthem 
sung by people who struggle with different kinds of shame. And it sounds like this a little bit, and I think it matches the anthem of this woman in this passage. After all this time, the world can't fix me, and I guess God's not going to either. So I guess I'm just going to hold on to this shame and isolation forever. I guess that's just my new normal. That's just the way it's going to be. And listen, if that's you in here, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you have shame. Let me rephrase that. I'm sorry to see that you are struggling and wrestling with that shame. I think we're going to see how Jesus redeems it today. I hope it's helpful. I think today, I think a passage like this can bring shame into our lives in such a context where it serves us instead of us serving shame. Right? That's my goal anyway. In fact, Gary Brashears, he uh, co-wrote a book called Love Letters from the Cross, and he actually speaks towards shame. Now, listen, before I read this, disclaimer, he is not talking about when something has been done to you. He is specifically focusing on shame that comes by, the virtu- by virtue of the fact that we are doing something to somebody else. Okay? says this, many counselors, even some Christian counselors, will speak of shame as if it were by and large a bad thing. I disagree he says. And I agree with his disagreement. Shame exists when there is sin. And so feeling ashamed, particularly when we sin, is natural and healthy. A sinner that does not feel shame has a broken conscience and runs the risk of becoming an amoral sociopath. Therefore, shame is not bad, but unless that sin that causes the shame is redeemed, the shame will remain with devastating implications. And you're going to want to remember those last two words. Because those devastating implications are also there. They're also there if something horrible was done to you and you were unable to process that well. You will still have devastating implications. I mean, 12 years will do that. 12 years will build uh, not an integrated Christian, but a disintegrated one. One who is numb, critical, cynical, disengaged, hopeless, and isolated. That is a chief tell of someone who is wearing a lot of shame. They become very isolated. And listen, you could be the life of the party and still be isolated. You could have more friends on Facebook than I do, where everybody knows you, but yet nobody knows you at the same time, because you've never told, as Mark says, your whole story. How well do they really know you? I think some of us in here have a lot of friends and have no friends at the same time, and you know what I'm talking about, right? I think something else happens when shame just runs free. Another devastating implication is it will drive us to sin. It will drive us to sin. Shame does that. Shame is especially nasty, right? Even if you had something happen to you and you were a total victim, you might have been a baby, you might have been just a child. If shame goes untreated, we start building fig leaves to cover our shame, to hide ourselves from others and to hide ourselves from God. And sometimes those fig leaves, it's nothing less or nothing more than just sin. And building fig leaf coverings, that's in our blood. That is our first go-to. I'll give you a couple examples. One of the fig leaves that we can build in our life to cover our shame is just distraction. Distraction, just keeping our eyes off of it. Building some sort of a distraction that will keep us from having to be quiet inside. To to ponder what, what has been done to us or what we have done, or both, right? We don't have to think about it if we're always busy with things. We won't have to stare at it. Some of you 
because you've known me for a, a little bit longer than others, but back in the old days when I was on the college campus, one of these things that I really wanted to be, I wanted to be a David Blaine or a Chris Angel that wasn't weird, you know? So I'd go out on the college campus with, with cards, and I, I would know a ton of tricks. I could do Street Illusion with cards. And the whole goal was to get a big crowd and then to preach the gospel and watch the crowd get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so we did this for a few years at Texas Tech and at Long Beach State, and it actually worked. We did it at University of South Florida. It worked. You get a big crowd, 40, 50 people, and you're talking, and then you start to kind of weave the gospel into it, and then you just start finding, oh, I'm late for class. See you later. And then they would never come back, right? But all I needed was two or three. So it worked. So I did this for years. But the problem was, the problem with my grand plan is I wasn't very good at the card tricks, right? Just good enough to get a crowd. And then after a while, I think they would start to see, hey, this guy's not that great, you know? Something you do whenever you do card tricks is called the misdirect, or it just could be a, a verb. You're misdirecting people. And that is if maybe some people with small hands, they can't cover the illusion, or maybe they're, they're sloppy technique and they just can't cover the illusion. So you'll have to do something to get their eyes off the cards. So if I would talk louder all of a sudden, everybody would look at my face. And then I would do the real sneaky thing with my hands, or I'd, I'd point over there and everybody would look, and then I'd quickly do it with my hands. It's called a misdirect. And everyone needs to have good misdirect. Don't look at the cards, look at me. Don't look at the cards, look at me. Don't look at the cards. That's how I pretty much did all of my routines. You know, don't look at the cards. Look at my eyes. We'll all be okay. But we do the same thing with shame. We just create different misdirection, don't we? Don't look at my shame. Look at me. Don't look at that. Look at me. Because distractions tell you and me, those who carry shame, that we could just deal with it later. But if we create enough distractions, later never has to come. Later never has to come. I think 50 years ago, this would be where a pastor would insert, this is why you should not drink alcohol, or this is why you might be overworking. They would plug those in as forms of distraction. I think 20 years ago, it might've been TV. You're watching too much gun smoke. You're watching too much whatever was on 20 years ago. I just made that up. But you're watching something too much. That, that 30 minutes a week is too much. It's taking your eyes off the ball, you know, of what you need to. I think maybe five years ago, it'd been social media, your cell phone. I think today it might be something a little bit more like binge watching or maybe gaming because it removes us from our crappy reality where we're suffering and we could at least win vicariously through somebody else. And if it works for even an hour, it's worth it, right? Whatever it is, it could be anything. But whatever you're using as a distraction, it requires repentance. It requires repentance. And that's a sin. It's basically saying, God, you are not good enough, so I have to scratch good right out of the ground. I have to find good. I have to create good, and then I have to use that to medicate myself because you aren't good. That's the unbelief right there. And the lie we tell ourselves is maybe after X amount of years, I will need less distraction. She did this for 12 years. Sometimes it goes on for quite a while, affliction mingled with shame. It lasts. That's one distraction. I think another one, and probably the primary one, is distance. We like to change our proximity and shuffle it up. We don't want to get close to God, for instance. I mean, let me just focus in for a moment. If something was done to you, it should be a good number of you, something was done to you, you might not want to be so close to God because he's not fair. He's not caring. He wasn't thoughtful for you. He dropped you. So the pain is so much that you can't look him in the eyes anymore. You can't think of God as lover or friend. You fired him when it comes to those roles and positions. He might be creator. He might be sovereign. 
He might be out there, but you won't let him close. That's why your favorite titles for God are the ones that let him be very far from you, right? Something that people struggle with whenever they create this kind of distance. That's why it's also probably very difficult for you to just sit at Jesus' feet and learn and ponder his affections for you. He must be a subject to be mastered. He must be a God to be held distant. And that's why whenever you read passages like Martha and Mary and how they... Jesus, that was, that's a very unique passage because we see Mary, I always get this view in my mind of her sitting at Jesus' feet all doe-eyed. She's so taken in, she can't even take notes. She's just drinking so deeply from his teaching. And then you've got Martha just spitting through the room. You know, she's refilling the unsweet tea. Um, she is taking up dirty dishes and busting the tables. She's putting food out there. She's kind of a little bit bitter the whole time because no one else is helping her. Martha, we resonate with a little bit when we're creating distance with God. Mary, we don't really understand, right? I think if you have done something that has created shame, it still creates a distance, just for a different reason. Now, God is not someone to be close with because you're just too dirty. You're just too dirty. So in order to cover the shame, you push away and you wipe yourself clean and you self-improve. Again, Martha is someone that you understand, Mary is not. Again, I think this is something that we see a lot with addictions or pervasive sin. I think this is something that's particularly notorious. Pornography is probably the biggest one, especially with young men. Even though the rate of it happening for women, that being a struggle for women, is actually climbing. And I don't know if it's really climbing or if it's always been high and it's just now being measured correctly. But we do know that it is out of control. It is not getting better. That is something that we know for sure. But I have met with man after man after man after man over two decades right now, and it is emasculating what it does. They don't feel like they can pray, read, talk about it openly, and it has them in such a place of shame that they would never even dream it sitting at the feet of Jesus. Just serving until the sin goes away, then they can sit. Currently, too much shame. And not just distance with God, but distance with others. We might get close physically with others, like go to a community group. I'm talking about getting close emotionally, close spiritually. This is different. I think a lot of us are hiding in community. We'll share a piece of ourselves, but not tell, as Mark says, the whole story. We're really good at that. I will tell them this much, because this much doesn't shame me so much. In fact, sometimes we could tell a little bit of our dirt, and it actually makes us feel better about ourselves, because it creates this view of a vulnerable Christian which is very, very far from vulnerable, right? So we hide, right in plain daylight, we're hiding. Not only can we not look God in the face, we can't look at others in the face either. And when others start to sniff it out, friends, they start poking, they kind of read between the lines of something you said and they ask a key question, what do we do? Misdirect. Oh, that didn't hurt me. I, listen, I know that thing happened to me, but it didn't hurt me. We, we make it look like the sting didn't really sting, like we're tougher than that. It's not going to hurt us. But honesty, it means being vulnerable, and being vulnerable, it means letting people see you, and that's just too much to bear. That's why some of you in this room are saying you're fine, and you are not fine. Hear me, you are not fine. You think you're fine, you are not fine. You are not fine. You need help. Right? You see, shame can be nasty. Because shame says you're wrong. You're wrong. You're just a wrong fit for God and you don't belong. That's what it says. This, this comes whether you've done something or something was done to you. 
So listen, if you're covering your afflictions and your shame with some various fig leaves to cope with the pain, that is a sin. It requires repentance. Shame untreated wrecks lives. One way or the other, it will do it. Now, the woman in our passage today was bleeding and desperate, and this passage challenges what we do when we see Jesus walk by. You see, the sight of Jesus coming into the picture encouraged desperation on her part to get very, very close to God. And when she does, we see, I think, one of the more beautiful displays of the gospel for you and me. We see it seated right in this passage. You see, all of God's miracles through Jesus are pointing to the gospel. I think what, time, what we could do is we could get trapped in thinking that Jesus does miracles because that's a cool thing to do, and people think he's cool when he does the miracle, and it gets a big crowd. Well, I mean, it is cool, and people do come around, but that's not really the point. Every one of those miracles is saying, hey, hey, get your attention. Look at this. This is about to happen. This is going to be really cool. In fact, if you go back, not even two days before this miracle, you see him quieting the raging seas, showing that God has power over nature. Then right after that, you have the demoniac. He casts the demons out, showing that he has power over the demonic. He's about to raise a little girl from the dead, which means he has power over death. Do you see what he's doing right here, all the signs? This one right here, he has power over shame and sickness. I mean, this little chunk of Luke shows that he has mastery and power over everything. The gospel shows how that comes alive. This is all pointing to the cross and the empty tomb. And here we see Jesus as a great shame remover. He's the great shame remover. He erases shame because he hates what shame does to you. Yes, shame is a little bit of a signal caller. Shame tells you something is wrong. It needs to be redeemed. It needs to be repented of. Or it just needs forgiveness. It needs help. Shame is a a signal caller. but, But Jesus hates what it does to you. I'll read this to you out of Hebrews 12. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus hates sin, And he hates what shame does to the Christian more than you do. He hates it. So for this woman, we see her going from being unclean to clean. She goes from not belonging to belonging. And Jesus did in one moment what 4,380 days of doctors couldn't do. He snaps it. In one moment, he takes care of it. So I think the real win here is not that she stops bleeding. That is a win. She wakes up the next morning and she has a new reality, right? That's cool. But the real win here is that shame is removed forever. It's gone forever. No shame in her life between her and God, no shame in her life between her and people, and she was added to community. And not just a community that dies off when it dies on this planet, but but an eternal community. We know this. Again, this is the only place where Jesus calls someone daughter, brings her into spiritual family. In a way, Jesus would start bleeding to stop her bleeding. He pays for this. When he undoes this, there's a price on it. He's gonna do it. He he would be cast aside so that she could be added too. We see a replacement here. I love Psalm 68 where it says, God settles the solitary into a home. And she finds a home in this place, in this passage. He brings her close. That war inside of her, he quiets it. 
I even love the phrase where it says, go in peace. The Hebrew word for this, by the way, if you were to trace it back, is just shalom, right? You hear people say it all the time, shalom. Shalom is an interesting kind of peace. It's not just peace from war stopping. It's a peace that integrates the whole person, that completes the person. Shalom means you are completed and you are in a right standing position with God. It's a holistic type of peace. And he is speaking that to her. Go in peace. You are right. You're not wrong anymore. You are right. You're a daughter. You're close. You're valuable. Your alone days are over. And I think some of you in this room, you probably have never really felt this peace, or you have forgotten what this peace feels like. Right? This peace that integrates you and places you in a right relationship. For some of you, it's because you're lost and you've never had it. You've always been away from God. You've always had an unrest in your heart, a war that is raging, a shame you've not been able to shake loose forever. And that's because you don't have a relationship with the shame remover. It's a very simple equation. And today, my prayer is, is that you become totally right, that you let God take that shame, that you fall at his feet and call him Lord, that you worship him today as a different creation, a new creation. And then so some of us in here, we know God and we have a right relationship with God, but we've been unable to really deal with the shame. Something done to us, something that we have done. We've struggled with that. I think there's power to beat it, though. In this passage, it said that God's power moved through Jesus. He says, I had power moved through me or from me. And I think even this points to a later moment where God's power will move through Jesus once again. Of course, he will be hanging on a cross when that happens, and it makes us right. It removes shame forever. I think the gospel is incredibly clear in this passage. And we see some, some mechanical movement in what the woman does. One, when she sees Jesus, she's desperate to get close, even if it meant exposing herself. And then two, when she got close, she painfully tells her story. I say painfully, I'm adding that, I bet it wasn't easy. Tells her story, she's desperate, because all of her options have been exhausted. And so this meant movement. She moves, she gets up, she does something. And I think for us, part of that movement, part of what it looks like to grab a little piece of Jesus' robe is to repent. It's just to turn from whatever sin we're using to cope or whatever sin we're using to keep that shame. This always, for me, as a preacher or as a counselor, this always comes across as heartless feeling because some of you, as I said, have had just pure evil dumped on you unspeakable things. I'm not saying that you should repent from unspeakable things happening to you. There would be nothing to repent from. Something was done to you and you're a genuine victim. But some of the things you might be doing to cope with that, yeah, you gotta repent for that. That's a sin against God. You've turned to that thing instead of Jesus and that is a sin. First John 1, it says it this way. I think it's very helpful. I think it's a very compassionate passage that helps me here. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay? If we say we have no sin, now we usually, when we read that, we think of just the pompous jerk. I don't have any sin, you know, but, but I want you to think if you're a victim right now, and you're doing something to cope with the shame that was given to you, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and the word is not in us. 
You see, she had to open herself to Jesus in front of others. This is a very deep picture of vulnerability. This is not to be moved directly from that context to this one, where one by one, you guys come forward and you start dumping all your trash out there for everybody to see. But we do see the theme of vulnerability in here. I think we should track with that. And I want you to know, in this case, it kind of looks like Jesus is being a little bit of a jerk for letting her do that in front of everybody. He is not. He's caring for her. Word needs to get out that she is not unclean anymore. Her telling her story in front of other people, it's going to bring credibility. It's going to allow her to re-enter community. It's going to allow her to get that life back that she had 13 years ago. This is actually a deep moment of love. But could you share your story, your whole story, honestly, vulnerably? You know, Matt Norman got up here last week and spoke a little bit regarding redemption groups, right? And listen, if that's something that you want to, to get into, you're going to need to talk to him about it today, right? So raise your hand, Matt. Just a quick, there we go. There's Matt. So you're going to want to talk to him today. Redemption groups might be one of the better things our church does, not because it hits the widest amount of people. It doesn't hit a lot of people. It hits a very few select people, but it does a lot of good. You see totally different people exit the other side of that, right? Because it helps to have people that you could share your story with. It won't take your shame and drop it, mishandle it, but can help walk you through it as you tell your whole story. Because desperation is not only repenting, it's sharing your life with the people that you trust. I think this is what it means for us to grab Jesus' robe today as he passes by. I think this is what desperation looks like for us. Moving, repenting, sharing, mourning, but then celebrating what God has done for us, all of those things. And I think when that happens, we see very clearly, especially in the gospel, that our shalom is a person. Our peace is a person. He is the integrator, making us complete and one with God. He is our peace in this frenetic world. He covers our shame. He is a better covering, not a fig leaf. Our bleeding stops with him. Why? Because his bleeding was for us. You know, as a missionary, I need to land this quick application for us as a church of missionaries to a city that's broken. Carry a couple of assumptions with you whenever you go and you speak to those who are far from Jesus. One is everybody has shame that they're not telling you. No, you don't know their whole story because they're not telling you. Just know that. Just know that that deep moment you had with that person was a fraction of what's really there. They're not lying to you. They're protecting themselves. That is a, that is a little bit of distance they're creating. You need to know that. But you also need to ask yourself, what kind of relationship am I creating with this person? Is it superficial or is there great intentionality at it? We all have friendships where we talk about the Vols a little bit and then we might shift gears into whatever's trending on Netflix and that's pretty much where it ends, right? And if you let that happen for 10 years, it'll probably stay pretty close to that, probably. But those friendships that God has called you in to develop, it's going to require intentionality from you. And part of that intentionality is going to look like creating space and creating moments for this kind of talking, for this kind of ministry. Because you know as well as I do, once you've shared your life and you were vulnerable and you told the whole truth with somebody, man, that's a friend. When they've taken that shame and they've not dropped it or laughed at you or mishandled you, that's a relationship, but it took, it took intentionality. It, look at the relationships you have now that are really good. That took intentionality. It didn't just come out of thin air. 
Even think down to the conversation. How are you leading the conversation? Another thing that you can carry as an assumption is that no, not everybody is comfortable at Jesus' feet. Even if they say that they are, it's kind of complicated. They're not comfortable there. They want distance from God. They want a little distance from you. Your neighbor is going to make it seem like they're fine and they don't need your help, but they do. They're just uncomfortable because shame will do that. Shame will do that. It's just a fig leaf. Don't hate them. Be patient. Have grace. It's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. And then I think the third biggest is not so much an assumption but a truth, and that is that they need the peace of God. They need value. They want to be valuable more than what mankind can give. They need belonging. That's what they're after. They need this more than anything. I think seeing shame leave our neighbors and leave the city, it's going to require a desperate move towards Jesus on their part, but it's going to have to start with us first, with us first as a people. All right, go ahead and stand with me. I want to read to you just a quick passage. And it is a picture, and this is how I want you to see it as you read it, This is a picture of a different moment in time where God himself has a robe on. And it's a different robe than what we see in this passage. It's a robe that fills the temple. It's a robe of grandeur. It's a robe that clothes a glorified, risen, righteous, glorious, majestic king. And that's a robe that we get a part of for the rest of our lives. Revelation 1. And then I take bits and chunks out of 19 as well. And in the midst of the lampstands... One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. Father, we thank you for this passage. I thank you that you are King Jesus walking through with a a dirty robe on that a a dirty woman grabbed and was made less dirty. Father, she died eventually. Everyone you healed died eventually. Father, you are also glory in the most high with a beautiful robe on and that robe is dipped in blood because your blood started because you stopped ours your gospel is good you are good you've taken our shame we don't have to feel dirty you've called us sons and daughters we are included we're in a place that we belong forever so shame has no hold on me shame has no hold on us Shame has lost its sting. It has lost its grip. The accusations that that shame casts out over us, it has lost its voice. Shame is no longer. You are so good and you are so beautiful, Father, what you've done for us. Why would we look for good in other things? 
what could possibly help me cope with the sin that I have done other than you? What could help me cope from the sin done to me other than you? So Lord, we're not just a celebratory church here, we're a repentant church by saying that there are other things that are more beautiful than you. You are the great God walking among the crowd. Power goes to us and heals us and stops our blood, stops our problems, stops our afflictions. Lord, we love you. And we just pray that in this time of singing and taking communion together as groups or families, as the service molds on, well, Lord, we don't get too far from the idea that you have taken our shame. Father, we are so used to living with shame, we don't know what it feels like to live without it. Like to wake up one morning and not have shame be this cloud around us, it's, it's a foreign feeling. But Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to show us what that feels like and then empower us to carry the message of what you've done to a city that can't get out from underneath that cloud either. Lord, Knoxville has a cloud of shame because Knoxville, as any city, as any person, has done shameful things and has had shameful things done to them. But Lord, you take all of that and you lift it those that you call children. Help us. Help us, Father. Be ministered to by that and help us minister to others. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray.